Hello and welcome to Last Week 100 Years Ago, the podcast where we bring you the hottest news from last week 100 years ago. I'm Isaac Smith. And I'm Mike Karch. And today we'll be trying to answer the question, what happens when you help the little old lady cross the road? But <laughs> we'll get to that later in the episode. First, we're going to start off with... National news. So our first story comes from the Los Angeles record on Saturday, April 9, 1921. And the headline reads, dollars worth 63.2 cents now. And it says the dollar is now worth 63.2 cents in comparison with the purchasing power of the 1913 greenback. In June, the dollar was worth 45.6 cents. Now, when I first read this, I was a little bit confused because I didn't know how a dollar could be worth less than a dollar. <laughs> but I did some research, as always. And so a greenback refers to a United States note, which is different than what we use today. It was issued from 1862 to 1971 in the U.S. They were originally issued directly into circulation by the U.S. Treasury to pay expenses incurred by the Union during the Civil War. But they're still valid currency. So if you have any United States notes, hold on to them. I looked it up on eBay and one 1862 $5 greenback is worth around $199. A little bit less than you would think, but it's more than 63.2 cents. <laughs> There's some guy who's just like, ha oh, diggity, and pulls out his wallet. <laughs> it's just full of greenbacks. Also from the Los Angeles record on Saturday, April 9, 1921. I read this story and it just tickled me greatly. It says, Bard from White House, tough on Cousin Everett. And this is like the first little segment before I get into it. Little Pearl Harding, so, you know, Warren G. Harding, president at the time, mm -hmm. will not, after all, be the White House baby. The police have brought a sudden stop to the climb of the Chicago Hardings, who became celebrities through a bogus relationship to the president, Warren G. Harding. So basically, this family went around from paper to paper, city to city, telling people they were all related to President Harding. But it turns out that Pearl's brother, quote, quote, the cousin Everett, according to a doctor at a mental hospital, is mentally unsound and his claims to a relationship to President Harding are based on a delusion. <laughs> but it actually went pretty far. So the Hamilton Club of Chicago gave cousin Everett a life membership and, quote, the keys to the clubhouse. The Pennsylvania Railroad furnished a private car for the Hardings to go to and from Washington after Everett gave them a check for around $2,000. President Harding himself even accepted his claims and invited Everett and his family to the inauguration and met them cordially and then eventually brought the downfall of Everett after he learned that the check tendered to the railroad was worthless and they reported the claims false and found Everett had a police record. But if he did not send in that check, we might be learning about, quote, quote, cousin Everett in the history books. So this guy just had the same last name as the president. And he's like, you know what? Uh, you miss 100 percent of the shots you don't take. You know, honestly, I'm not too sure they even had the same last name. <laughs> <laughs> well, without the Internet, that sounds right to me. <laughs> I have a uh, article that's semi related to national news. It does revolve around crime. Should we go to the crime corner? Let's go to the crime corner. <laughs> Okay, so reading these articles, uh, crime pretty much happened like all the time. And so one crime in particular seemed to be a national problem, and it was especially bad for businesses. And the crime was mugging cashiers. So the first article is bandits get $20,000, and it happens in Chicago, April 11th, to Miss Gertrude McGuddy. That's an awesome name. And she's a cashier for the Consumer's Coffee and Butter Store. 
So she's carrying $20,000 of cash, which I mean, back then was a lot. Wait, she's carrying $20,000 of cash? She's carrying $20,000 of cash in a bag. And this is where the, <laughs> the article kind of got me because I grew up in an age of just online transactions or even just sending the mail. But they didn't have that back then. So if you're a business and you made money, you had to literally bring that money to the bank. So the responsibility of that lied with the cashier. <laughs> so Miss Gertrude McGuddy walks out of her work and is immediately mugged by three muggers who beat her up and run off with a bag of $20,000 of cash. On the same date in Los Angeles, also on April 11th, a cashier is walking from the Los Angeles Examiner, which is like a newspaper organization, Three muggers come out and start beating him over the head with a revolver, trying to get the money from him. But he keeps shouting, and eventually this scares them away, and he saves the money. So the whole article is, cashier shouts, save newspapers $25,000. The thing I love about this, though, is that he got mugged as soon as he left the building. <laughs> so it's like if you were a cashier and worked at Walmart, and as soon as you walked outside of Walmart, three guys came and beat you up. So <laughs> you can imagine like cashiers pulling lots or something, and they're like, well, it's your turn to go and deliver the money to the bank. And you look outside, and there's just a whole bunch of guys, as one of my friends quoted it, just holding lead pipes, chewing toothpicks, being like, <laughs> come on out. <laughs> okay, so I have an article that's somewhat related, and then I want to talk about how easy it is to rob people and in stores in the 1920s. So this is from the Santa Rosa Republican on Thursday, April 7th, 1921. And it says, bold daylight robbery in the city. So you already know a little bit where it's going. So $40,000 in jewelry was taken by bandits who staged a daylight robbery of a jewelry store by breaking in in the middle of the day right after the person left. And they didn't find any clues. They just got away with $40,000 in jewelry. Because as we are hearing, it's so easy to rob people and stores <laughs> in the 1920s. As long as you get the person right as they're leaving or right as they left, it seems like anything is possible. The detectives come. They're like, do you have any clues? Uh, yeah, it looks like he got robbed. Anything else? Nope, nope. That's that's it. The article even says the first investigation by a squad of detectives failed to reveal anything in the form of a definite clue. So that reads to me as sorry, man, that's it. We can't really help you anymore. <laughs> uh, you'd think, I don't know, maybe there should have been like someone driving around in an armored car or police officers who would escort people. Something to help right. them not get mobbed the second they leave their businesses. That could have been like a schedule thing, like you schedule with the police and you're like, hey, right. Miss Gertrude is going to go and deliver money. Can you escort Miss Gertrude to the bank <laughs> so she doesn't get money? Oh, simpler times. <laughs> the good old days. I have another crime story. This one is pretty ridiculous. It's a bit more depressing. Well, it is more depressing, but it doesn't take away from the fact how ridiculous this crime story is. The first article that talks about this was man denies he's the one who killed Fresno girl. There's this guy, Joseph Baca. He was arrested on Saturday, April 11th, and he's the suspect for the murder of Alice Brixby in San Francisco. But he denies that he's the one who actually killed her. The story goes that Alice Brixby and her friend Virginia Thompson are walking to a party. Alice is visiting her friends in San Francisco, and they're giving her a farewell party. Alice says, it took me about three months to even get to San Francisco because it's the 1920s. So let's throw you a farewell party. While they're walking to this party, they're walking along a park, and a man pops out of the bushes 
and starts trying to harass them. He's like, hey, girls, how's it going? Obviously, they don't want to talk to him because he's a guy who just jumped out of the bushes. So they keep ignoring him. <laughs> Why would you want to talk to someone who just jumped out of the exactly. bush? Exactly. So he says to them one last time, oh, girls, I'm lovesick. And they keep ignoring him for obvious reasons. What do you say to that? If some <laughs> random person comes up to you and say, oh, girls, I'm lovesick. How do you respond to that? You just keep walking. I mean, what else would you do? Which is what they did. <laughs> Good. So he didn't like this. And he pulls out a revolver and fires four shots at them. Everybody has a gun. It is 1920s. Everyone has a gun. I'm surprised that they didn't have a gun. We uh, need to change girls. the name of this podcast to Everybody Has a Gun. <laughs> So two shots go wide, but he hits Alice Brooksby in the back twice. She gets hit in the lungs and the hips, and she dies almost immediately. He runs out of bullets and throws his gun at Virginia Thompson. She gets hit and falls down. Meanwhile, another man, his name is Donald McMillans, but he lives at 489 Buena Vista Avenue in San Francisco. So to anyone who kind of lives in the area and you want to walk through time, you can actually go to that address. I don't condone harassing anyone there, but you can stand where he was standing and see the park where Alice and Virginia were walking. And you can actually see the bushes where this guy popped out. So Donald runs down and tries to help Alice, who's bleeding out. But this guy runs back into the bushes. Donald goes and gets the police. The police come and they say, we want this guy caught dead or alive. So they send in a squad of police officers with shotguns and hound dogs. The only description they have of this guy was that he was wearing a gray coat. So the dogs start tracking the guy through the bushes, but all they have is a gray coat. So they start rounding up anyone who looks suspicious. And it's just anyone wearing a gray coat. Anyone who's wearing a gray coat and is suspicious. So there's like one guy who's on a street corner who's literally just mumbling to himself, talking to himself. So they snag him. They get another description that he could be a Greek, which I guess that was like enough of a term back then where you could just see someone. And he's like, oh, that's a Greek. Greek? <laughs> yeah, Greek, like from Greece. <laughs> How do you discern? So okay. <laughs> Continue. <laughs> <Right>. so, <laughs> so with that in mind, they have gray coat and maybe Greek. So they go to all the Greek coffee shops and they go to all the Greek rooming houses. And a rooming house is somewhere where you just rent an apartment. I like to imagine they're raiding these places, but they say searching. So they search all the Greek places and round up anyone who's suspicious. And here we were earlier wondering why they couldn't figure out a system to help people not get robbed the second they stepped out <laughs> of their stores. <laughs> So they get two suspects, and, and this is where it gets even better. Both suspects claim that they were not even in San Francisco when Alice was murdered. But one of the people they caught, Joseph Baca, he immediately tried to slit his own throat when the police found him. So they stop him from slitting his throat. They take him to a hospital, and they're like, you know what? This guy tried slitting his own throat. It's probably him. He's probably the murderer. They later found out that Joseph Baca wasn't even in San Francisco during the murder, but he is the prime suspect. It's oh. <laughs> so they couldn't put him as a murderer, but they sent him to an insane asylum and then said, this man is insane. Well, I mean, he tried to slit his own throat the second they just found him. Right. And that's how the story ends. That's how it ends? They don't find the captive. Their prime suspect is a man who tried killing himself, who wasn't even in San Francisco during the murder. And the result of the whole investigation or incident was Alice died with two gunshot wounds. And they found a guy who tried killing himself and they committed him to an insane asylum. And that's the end of the story. <laughs> I am speechless. I'm trying to think of something to say. I don't know what to say to that. You did not under deliver when you said that it's an insane crime story. <laughs> 
We are putting a And now let's transition to international. This article is from the Daily Free Press. It happens on Thursday, April 11th of 1921. And this is an ongoing article. There was another article that happened a couple of days later that talked about the result of this. The first article is pit workers refuse to cease flooding mines. The conference is off. It takes place in Great Britain. And the whole backstory of it is during World War One, the British government wanted to secure their most valuable energy source, which to them at the time was coal. So they wanted to secure it and they nationalized it, which means the government took control of the coal industries. What ended up happening as a result is that wages increased, hours decreased, and the overall safety of working inside of a mine improved. So the workers really enjoyed working under a government company. Well, the war ends and all the owners of the mines say, hey, government, we want our mines back. We're the rightful owners. The coal miners say, we like the status quo. It's better. The prime minister, his name is David Lloyd George, sides with the coal miners. I think this is the same Lloyd George a few episodes ago who we read about who went to a picnic. That's right. The same Lloyd George. Wow. He's getting all around. (laughs) He must have been an important guy back then. (laughs) The prime minister, Lloyd George, I'm going to have to be slow on that one, otherwise I'm going to trip myself up. He likes the idea that Great Britain's most important fuel source is safely in the hands of the government. But then the owners go back and they say, well, we have influence and we have money. (laughs) So the prime minister is like, you know, you guys got a good point. I'm going to switch sides. I'm with the mine owners. The miners don't like this. So they all unionize. Not only do they unionize, they team up with two other groups of workers. They team up with dock workers who also unionize, and they team up with the guys who work the railroads. So they become this trifecta of unions. Wow. And that's a pretty significant body. No, that's that's huge, especially for that time. Exactly. So the unions start striking, but out of all the unions, the miners take it a step further. They start flooding mines. So they start going back and forth. The owners say, we're reducing wages because we can't keep operating at this cost. So they go to this meeting with the union miners and the union miners say, oh, you want to reduce your wages? Well, we just flooded another mine. The owners say, we want to reduce the wages. The miners go, oh, would you look at that? Another mine got flooded. (laughs) This keeps happening. And so the thing that we kind of have to realize during the time is that civil unrest was big. There was strikes going on in the US or strikes going on in Great Britain. And there's a lot of disenfranchised workers. And also, in addition to that, there was an economic depression coming along. So this is perfect environment for communism to spread. Communism was a huge thing back then. Russia at the time is having a civil war between themselves with communists. And so the government starts getting involved. They don't like where this is going. So they start deploying thousands of troops to these strategic points and start stocking up food supplies. They're literally preparing for a civil war. And so all the unions, they have this big event planned. It's called Black Friday, and they want it to happen on April 15th. It's only a week away, and all the unions are planning to strike at the same time, which is going to shut down the economy. But the dock workers and the railway guys, they want to have talks. They want to solve this. But they can't keep having talks because the conferences keep getting called off because the miners keep flooding mines. (laughs) So days before Black Friday is supposed to happen, The other unions, the dock workers and the railroad workers, stop siding with the miners. They say, you know what? Black Friday's coming up. We're not going to participate. You guys are on your own. So this takes away a huge chunk of the miners' negotiating power and their ability to even go on a strike. And so the next article 
that talked about it was Premier Safe and Another Great Crisis. So they're pretty much saying, hey, Great Britain avoided another crisis. They were on the verge of a civil war because two unions backed out of having this general strike. But it was a very serious thing back then. And the result of it was that they ended up draining the mines and they ended up losing some of their negotiation strengths. And I think eventually they made some concessions, but the owners ended up taking back the mines and I don't think the unions got what they wanted. As a result, about 20 mines in Scotland were almost ruined beyond repair and 18 in Wales were almost ruined beyond repair. But about like 100 or so mines were flooded. So it seems like the miners really just got the shit end of the stick on this one and everyone else kind of was fine. Yeah, they did not get what they wanted. Do we know why the dock workers pulled out? I think they pulled out because the minor unions wouldn't hold talks. The dock workers and the railroad workers, they wanted to negotiate. They wanted to get to a deal, but you can't get a deal if you can't talk and you can't talk because these miners keep flooding mines. Oh, that makes sense. So they thought they were being too revolutionist and not actually... Right, right. They they weren't willing to actually negotiate. And then some of them could probably see the writing on the wall like, hey... If we keep this up, we might actually go towards civil war. Transitioning to hard to hear articles that talk about issues that we as a people might have trouble coming to terms with. Hard to hear. This article comes from the Morning Register on Thursday, April 7th, 1921. And it's titled Forced by Planner to Help Slay 11 Negroes. Now, I want to preface this by saying... I'm a white man. I'm probably not the best person to talk about this, but I thought it's important to talk about these issues because they were happening at the time. And because this is slavery adjacent in a way, or basically slavery, and this is in the 1920s. You can't talk about the 1920s without talking about this. No. And I mean, the Tulsa race massacre, as we know, happened at the end of May, I think May 31st ish. So these things were happening up until that point and past that point. So I wanted to talk about this article. It starts off by saying, fear for his life was the motive that prompted Clyde Manning, quote, Negro farm boss, it says, but definitely not, and I'll get to that later, to help kill 11 Negro farmhands employed on the Jasper County plantation of John S. Williams. He told the jury that he did not want to help kill them, but was afraid to disobey Williams, who was trying to get rid of them for fear they might testify regarding alleged peonage conditions on the Williams farm. Peonage is also called debt slavery or debt servitude. It's a system where an employer compels a worker to pay off debt with work. In this case, it was most definitely still slavery. Legally, peonage was outlawed by Congress in 1867, so John S. Williams was doing something highly illegal. I had to look up what this was for more information, and it turns out this was a very pivotal case for race relations in the South. What happened was, in November of 1920, this man named Gus Chapman escaped from Williams's plantation and made his way to the Atlanta offices of the Bureau of Investigation, so what the FBI is today and told them about the peonage at the plantation. Two agents visited the plantation on February 18, 1921, a few months before this article, and interviewed the black farmhands and Williams. Most said nothing except for Clyde Manning, who lied about an earlier escape attempt by Gus Chapman. Wait, they had to escape? Like they weren't allowed to just leave when they can? Yeah, I mean, it was slavery. He was still holding them hostage there. It didn't really go into detail how, Mm-hmm. But, you know, they're not going to be able to just escape and go live their lives. They're going to have so much more trouble, right. especially being in the South. Well, because I, I was thinking it's like, well, debt servitude. That, I mean, I feel like that still means you could still go to like the grocery store or something. You could still walk about town. I didn't think it was a thing where you were restricted to the plantation. I think in this case, and I think at this time, it seems like it was. But the agents, after 
Clyde Manning lied about the earlier escape attempt. The agents still left and didn't want to pursue the matter further because to the agents at the time, peonage was not super high on their list of issues. But Williams became suspicious and wanted to, quote, get rid of the evidence, which is so gross. He told Manning that it was either their necks or his and ordered him to help him kill the black farmhands. Some were killed with axes or pickaxes. Others were thrown off bridges while chained and weighted down with rocks, and some were shot. Manning was close to becoming a victim himself when the three men in the river were found. They issued warrants for Williams and Manning, and both of them were arrested. Williams thought he was perfectly okay when he got to court and tried to frame Manning because it was an all-white jury. So he was like, oh, I'm going to be fine. These are my people. You know, I can be openly racist in the South. Luckily, the all-white jury found him guilty, but Manning was also found guilty. I mean, Manning did kill the other black farmhands. It's, it's, a, it's a hard thing. Reading this article, I had trouble reasoning in my head. Should Manning have gone to jail? I don't know because he was ordered to do that by Williams and it was a total power thing and he didn't really have control of himself. I don't know. It's interesting. I, I, I'm in the same boat. I don't know how to answer that. I think that'd be a very interesting scenario for law students or anyone in, in, in criminal. I was about to say, it should be on the bar exam. Right. That is absolutely insane. That's like something you would see from like the TV show like Fargo or something. Mm -hmm. That's absolutely ridiculous. And so Manning died in prison of tuberculosis in 1927. And Williams was killed four years later in a state penitentiary. It didn't go into detail how. But during the 1920s, a number of state and federal prosecutors were encouraged by this conviction and successfully tried other peonage cases in Georgia and the rest of the South. So this was really sort of a wake-up call in a way, for the South to realize that, holy shit, we're still doing terrible things to black people and we need to stop doing that. Not that they've stopped today, but peonage at the time slowly faded out of existence. So this was like the case that pretty much started to end peonage. That's what I got from this, yeah. That is insane. If you didn't talk about this, I would have never known this was a thing. No, and I had no idea either. And then, I mean, you look at the Tulsa race massacre. I wasn't taught that in school. It's crazy that they don't teach these things. We're learning about this now because we just happened to start this podcast and look at old newspapers. But I would never have known this otherwise either. Yeah. The Tulsa thing, if I didn't watch HBO's Watchmen, which even when I watched it, I was like, is that a real thing or is that fictional? After that story, I think we're going to end with some lighter stories dealing with human interest. Human interest! First story I got here. This article is titled, Gotham Gets Rare Fruits from Africa. Strange Crosses Seen. When they refer to Gotham, which I didn't know this, Gotham was actually another name for New York City. Is that where they got Gotham for Batman? Exactly. Oh, that's so cool. I think Frederick Douglass actually first coins the term Gotham as a satirical point, and then it just kind of stuck. But the article pretty much says, Gotham is now eating its fruits from South Africa. Shipments of plums, nectarines, peaches, pears, and honeydew melons from far off Cape Colony are helping the city to keep her reputation for ignoring seasons in the matter of food. Strange crosses of peaches and plums and apples are among the shipments, resulting in colors of deep red splashed with yellow in odd shapes that are unfamiliar to most of us. When they say yellow in odd shapes, I think they're talking about bananas. But pretty much, this is the time when they're starting to get shipments of fruit from other places because it's cold oh, in New cool. York. You can't grow fruit. So this is just showing, hey, guess what? This huge 
progression in history. We, we're finally getting to an era where we can eat fruit even though we live in the North. That's very cool. You know, it's not just people that were eating well in New York. There were also dogs eating well in Wilmington, Delaware. And let me tell you about that. <laughs> so this comes from the News Journal on Friday, April 8th, 1921. And the title is Dog Eats Dog. Black Poodle Invades Wagon, Captures String of Frankfurters, and Provides Feast. And that kind of tells you everything you need to know, but I'll read this little excerpt. Dogs of every description, from a small French poodle to the Airedale specimen, were treated to a regular feast this morning. So basically, a small black poodle ran up to this truck carrying groceries for a store, broke in, stole several yards of Frankfurters, and then ran them down the street to a party of other canines. And as the article says, quote, they succeeded in devouring the entire chain of dogs. So it's like something out of a Disney movie. I was just about to say that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I could picture it everything. The cartoon chain link sausages oh, yeah. trailing behind. And them. then the butcher running out being like, darn you dogs. <laughs> I got one article that is interesting, but it baffles me. This article is titled to be queen of jungle kingdom. This is a story about Miss Ellen M. Douglas who is, quote, to be queen of the Brazilian jungle and empress of over 1,440,000 acres of rubber land. So Miss Ellen M. Douglas is just some regular dame from Oakland, California. She marries a... I'm sorry, wait, did you say regular dame? I did. Okay. I'm getting with the times. <laughs> I, just, I had to call that out, but continue. <laughs> So she marries a Brazilian army major who was awarded this land. They marry. They divorce somehow. I don't know who divorced whom. But from the divorce, she wins the right to this land. So some random lady from Oakland, California, married a Brazilian guy, divorced him, or he divorced her. She won the land and is now owning more land that is larger than some European countries. Wow. What happened to the land, do you know? This is where it bothers me. During the time, they would always say stuff in regards to so-and-so is preparing for a trip. So that's how the article ends. She's preparing for her trip to Brazil. I Googled her, Alan M. Douglas. I feel like anyone who owns that much land, especially in this ridiculous way, should be Googleable. I couldn't find her. I Googled her husband. Couldn't find him. I don't know what happened. Wow. I don't know if she still has the land. <laughs> wow, I wonder what it? happened. Maybe she never made it to Brazil. And then the land just disappeared. They're like, well, I guess we'll keep this. <laughs> she she could have arrived and she's like, yeah, I own this land. They're like, no, you don't. Come on, you're being ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> so I have one last human interest piece before we get to yours. So this one comes from the Sacramento Star, Tuesday, April 5th, 1921. And it's called Solon's Vote Holiday to See Ball Game. Baseball took ascendancy over lawmaking Tuesday, and the assembly voted itself a half holiday to watch the governor, quote, twirl the first ball in the Vernon-Sacramento match. So basically, this was a bunch of assemblymen and women, and they were all voting over whether they would get a half day or not just to watch the governor throw the first ball and they could go to the baseball game. They're like, I guess we'll stop running things just to go watch baseball. And... Most of the assemblymen were for adjournment. Some were not. But all of the assembly women voted against adjournment, rightfully so, because what the fuck are you doing? And this was a quote by assemblywoman Esto Broaden. And she said, think what an uproar would go up if we wanted to adjourn to go to a bridge party. And I agree, Esto. That's an insane thing to do. <laughs> Someone probably proposed it and all the other like senators were thinking to themselves, you yeah, know, that's a great idea. 
we work hard. We we deserve a day off, and we like baseball. <laughs> We're the government. Who's going to tell us no? <laughs> Men can't live with them, etc. <laughs> so this last article answers the question: What happens when you help the little old lady cross the road? This article is titled "Got Sixteen Thousand Dollars." For a rescue, little old woman remembered. This article is charming, and I like it because it has a positive twist on it. And there's a lot of murders at the time, so it's nice that this one is positive. As long as it's not a murder, it just seems like a happy article. (laughs) It's a very low bar, but that's where we are. I like the first line of this article. A fairy godmother in the form of a little old lady whom he only saw once has made George Fogel's song... Happy with a gift of $16,000. $16,000 in 1921 in today's currency is $235,000. So she left him a lot of money. What ended up happening was that Miss Mary Lee, the old lady, was crossing the street one night when an automobile was driving too fast. She pretty much froze like a deer in headlights. George is walking by sees her walking, and can kind of put two and two together. So he dashes into the street, picks her up, and he almost gets hit himself. They get to the other side of the street. She faints. He resuscitates her, and she's like, well, I'm just trying to make my train appointment. I'm trying to switch trains. So he takes her to the train, and as she's about to leave, she asks what his name is, but doesn't get his address. Sometime later, she ends up dying, but she leaves in her will the $16,000 for George. Oh, wow. And then the administrators of her will are looking for George Fogelsong. They don't know where he lives. They can't find him. One day, he puts an ad out on the paper, and the administrators go, oh, that's our guy. So they track him down, knock on his door. He opens it up. Are you George Fogelsong? Uh, yeah, that's me. One day you saved an old lady crossing the road. Here's $16,000 that she left for you in her will. I love that story. That's very sweet in a way. What a stand-up guy. So maybe for all you listeners out there, when you see that little old lady crossing the road, maybe you should go and help her because you might just get a lot of money out of it. And that's the only motivation you really need. (laughs) Thank you for listening. And we'll catch you next time. Last week, 100 Years Ago is created by Isaac Smith. This episode produced by Michael Karch and Isaac Smith. Editing by Isaac Smith. Additional editing and sound mixing by Jeremy Zussman. Be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter for clippings of these articles and more at Last Week 100 Pod. Thank you for listening, and we'll catch you next time. <laughs>